Welcome to Daily Daf Differently, a Jcast Network podcast. This daily podcast invites you to join us to study the Daily Talmud page with a variety of liberal rabbis and teachers. For more information about Daily Daf Differently, please visit jcastnetwork.org slash ddd. For more information about the other Jcast Network podcasts and blogs, please visit jcastnetwork.org. Hello, and welcome to Daily Daf Differently. Jeremy Kalmanowski with you here, learning Tractate Yoma, page 56, or Nun Vav. And if you happen to be looking at Vilna Shas, the common printing of the Talmud, the common pagination, and you're looking at page 56 right now, you recognize it as the funniest-looking page of Talmud that you ever saw. As I'm sure you know, all of you know, in the Talmud page you have uh, the Talmud text in the middle, and the commentaries of Rashi and the Tosafot book bringing the margins and other, other commentaries in smaller type further around the margins. Well, our page today has a teeny, tiny, tiny, tiny amount of Talmud, only two lines on the A side of the dot, and big, gigantic, and enormous Tosafot analyzing some of the implications and some of the, uh, some of the presuppositions that go into to making our text make sense. Then on the bet side, it's a little bit more normal-looking page. I'd like to carry over a conversation that we began yesterday regarding what the Kohen Gadol did with the leftover blood of the bull and the goat after sprinkling them in the Holy of Holies. You may remember that, uh, I believe I said yesterday, that the Mishnah relates that there were two golden stands and the basin was supposed to go on uh, one for the bull and one for the goat. Rabbi Yehuda's position is that there was only one stand and uh, that the Kohen and his associates had to take the basin with the bull's blood off and then lay the basin with the goat's blood down. Uh, he, he said you had to have one basin, one stand and not two, because if you have two, you're just asking for a mistake. You're just asking for the Kohen who is, as, as our page will say today, who, has, who is weary, who is fasting, who has been doing all of, the, all of the rituals all by himself all day long, is worn out, and you're just asking for him to make a mistake and switch up the, the uh, one for the bull with the one for the goat. So our page is going to analyze how likely that mistake might be. Maybe they could just have written this one for the bull and this one for the, for the goat. But Rabbi Yoda's position is that that's just too wearying for such a busy Kohen worn out by fasting and everything. In the course of this, though, what, what comes up is quite interesting is a... Is a very closely tracking a sugya that we learned back in Tractate Shkalim about the concept of brera. In modern Hebrew, we say brera means alternative, and it's entered the Jewish lexicon in the modern age because uh, when when Ben Gurion was first presented with partition plans for Palestine in the in the 1930s, he, over his painful objection, said, "Well, ain brera." There is no choice. We simply must accept the partition of, of the land of Israel, even though we would prefer to have it all. And Brera, we have no alternative. And uh, by the way, this, this entered in the lexicon even further. In the 1970s, a left-wing American Jewish group called itself Brera to say there are alternatives. In fact, there are alternatives to the government's position on peace of the Palestinians. That was, at, at their time in the 70s, they were expressing radical ideas that Israel should should dialogue with the PLO, you know, another 20 years later, and that became the mainstream, the mainstream position. But in the 1970s, that was super duper radical, and they were, uh, they were, 
opposed at all corners throughout the Jewish world. Um, but anyway, that's not what the Talmud actually means by the term Brera. Brera in the Talmud doesn't mean uh, one alternative versus another. It means retroactive clarification. So if you have a given item of uncertain status, a given ritual item, a given food, or a given amount of money, and it's not clear exactly what its ritual status is, is it possible that subsequent actions can determine retroactively that the status was fixed and it was status X or status Y? Really, none of this has anything to do with the blood of the animals on Yom Kippur, but to understand Rabbi Yudah's position uh, on this, we also compare his position to the various chests for uh, receiving money donations in the temple. And in the course of that, he has a position that money needs to be sequestered so so that there be no donations for a particular hatat or purification offering whose, whose owners perhaps had died before the sacrifice was offered. That money has to be sequestered because if it fell in, if it fell in with the money for, uh, for other offerings, then once the owner died, that would render the entire uh, the entire contents of the chest in, invalid and unusable, the Talmud says, well, why don't you just extract a certain amount of money, let's call it, you know, $15, and, and declare that that $15 is the one that so-and-so gave, and the rest is, is retroactively clarified to have been for other purposes. We, we retroactively said that these $15 were you know, Mr. Jones's, and when he passed away, those are the ones that, that were rendered invalid, and the other $10,000 would be okay. Rabbi Yudah's position is there is no such thing as brera. There can't be retroactive clarification over which were his $15. It's all assimilated and cannot be re-extracted. In the course of this, we have a quotation. Now, I'm finally going to get you to page 56. That was all from 55. But, but on page 56, we're at the bottom of page 55, onto page 56, we have a quotation from uh, Rabbi Yehuda's uh, you know, paired paired partner. He's always in dialogue with Rabbi Meir, and it states here that halokeach yayin mi hakutiyim, somebody who buys wine from the Samaritans. Samaritans were a Jewish sect living in northern Israel, still still there. Their descendants are still there, and they are of uncertain Jewish status. They are sort of quasi-Jewish, but not in the Jewish mainstream. So if somebody were to buy wine from them, now you know that the rabbis are very very strict. One cannot buy wine from non-Jews. So the Kutiyim, the Samaritans, have this middle ground status. Evidently, you can buy wine from them, but the problem and the concern is that the wine may not have been tithed correctly. You buy the wine from the Samaritans. Erev Shabbat. The, just the Shabbat is about to begin. Im The sun is setting. Which means that you don't have time to separate out the tithes now and won't have time before Shabbat and can't do it on Shabbat, the person can omed the omer can stand there and say shnei login shani atid lahafrish harehen truma asara maaser rishon tisha maaser sheni umechel v'shotet miyad divrei Rabbi Meir. The person can say I hereby uh, announce that these two login that's a certain amount will be separated out for truma the gift of the priest. I hereby declare that these ten that these ten lugim will be separated out for the Levites and the Maaser, and these other ten will be separated out for Maaser Sheni, for the second tithe. I'll explain all that in just a moment. And the person can go ahead and drink the wine immediately. That is to say that the next day, after Shabbat is all over, the person will 
extract a certain amount of money and designate physically this contents of wine, this, you know, those 21% of the original total, um, I will designate those out for, for truma and maaser, the priestly and Levitical gifts. And even though the person doesn't do it until Sunday, we will say that the gift took effect on Friday afternoon. Um, so for Rabbi Meir, there is such a thing as Brera. This is a classic example of Brera. By the way, the reason that the Tosafot, page, the Tosafot on the page are so massively long, one of the reasons is that there are other traditions reported in Rabbi Meir's name which cast doubt on whether or not he believes in Brera. And they go through the, they go through the various traditions. That, that need not concern us right now. But the point that I think is interesting is our conversation about uh, is about whether or not there can be this kind of uh, spooky uh, Einstein called the comparable concept in physics spooky action at a distance whether something that can happen on Sunday can affect what happened the previous Friday I want to say a word about this the truma and maaser system the priestly and Levitical tithe in the agricultural system of ancient Israel can't say what actually happened in fact but what is supposed to happen is that in the gross product of, uh, of all of the uh, agricultural product, whether wine or grain or, or uh, the major agricultural product, one is supposed to separate out 2%, the truma, the gift of the Kohen, ideally is 2% of the gross product, could be a little bit more, could be a little bit less, 10% of the remainder, so a teeny bit less than 10% of the original gross product, 9.8% of the original gross product, is separated out for gifts to the Levites, and another 9.8% of what's left from that is Maaser Sheni, the second Maaser, which either, depending upon the year and the cycle, was enjoyed by the owner upon going to Jerusalem, or uh, was given to the poor. In a, in a sabbatical, seven-year sabbatical cycle, years one, two, four, and five, it was enjoyed by the owner in Jerusalem on pilgrimage in years three and six, it went all to the poor. So in classical agricultural system, uh, about 21% gross went to uh, other purposes, went to taxes, essentially. All right, thanks for learning today's page with me, and I look forward to learning with you again tomorrow. I hope you've enjoyed today's episode of Daily Daf Differently, and that you'll join us again tomorrow for a new page. The music at the opening and close of this episode is Ufros from the Epic Horus album One Bead. Available on Bandcamp, iTunes, and Spotify.